listener, this is podcast 40, and we're on the weekly sofa this week, but we've got a special. Richard and I are bowing out, aren't we, Rich? Yep. And handing over to Farmer Phil, who's talking to Melanie Matthews from TB Alert, because she has emailed him to tell him how he's wrong about TB in certain aspects. Should make for good listening. Should do. Mm-hmm. Over we go to Phil on a Skype interview with Melanie. Good morning, Melanie. This is Farmer Phil on his first Skype interview for the Wiggly podcast. And we're talking this morning to Melanie Matthews from TB Alert. Melanie, perhaps you could start off by telling us briefly what TB Alert is. Hi, Phil. Nice to meet you on Skype. Yeah, TB Alert is a charity in the UK which is concerned with tuberculosis in the UK and overseas. Now, we're not actually a charity which deals with bovine TB which is what we were going to talk about. But because I've learned a lot about TB, I've also, along the way, learned quite a lot about bovine TB too. So it's something that quite interests me. And, of course, bovine TB and human TB are not entirely unrelated. They're not, no. People can catch bovine TB, and in terms of how it's treated, how it's diagnosed, what it looks like, what it feels like to the person, it's pretty much exactly the same thing. Um, The bacteria looks a little bit different under a microscope, apparently. I was going to say that there are several different varieties of TB, but they are fairly closely related. And I think I'm right in saying that the pasteurisation of dairy products is almost entirely as a means of making sure that humans don't contract bovine TB. Is that, would that be right? That's correct, yes. Before pasteurisation, and in countries where they don't have pasteurisation of milk, one of the, the biggest killers was TB, and often TB of the stomach. Most people think of it as a lung disease, but but that's generally when you breathe it in. With unpasteurised milk, you're drinking it and TB can affect you in the stomach. And in fact, sort of a few hundred years ago, it was one of the biggest killers in this country. Hence the uh, Victorian sanatoriums dotted around in draughty places on top of hills. Exactly. <laughs> they decided, because they couldn't cure it, there was nothing that they could do to, to cure it. The only thing they could do is keep the people away from other people so they wouldn't pass on. Because if you have TB of the lungs, it can can be infectious so keep them away from other people give them lots of fresh air good food lots of rest and just hope that by building up their immune system with good food and lots of rest they would be able to fight it and some of them did and Mm. if they didn't they died now the reason we came into contact was basically because i'd made another of my sweeping comments (laughs) on the podcast and you quite reasonably pulled me up on it and I, i basically i think led the general public to believe that i was saying that tb was incurable I got on my high horse and thought no you can't say that well f- fair <laughs> enough so really what your point was that TB is entirely curable but it takes a long time because it's difficult to actually get at the bacteria within the body isn't it it is well it, it is entirely curable we now use a sort of combination of drugs the first drug that was invented they thought this is wonderful you know this is curing TB and then they realized that the bacteria were changing and being resistant to that drug so we now use a combination of four drugs which prevents that drug resistance but the tb bacteria grows and multiplies very very slowly and because of that it takes a long time to kill them all off and in this country generally treatment is six months depending on the treatment regime it can be anything from six to nine months and if somebody does have drug resistant tb 
whether because they've caught drug-resistant TB from someone else or because they've had bad treatment or not finished taking their treatment, which is why doctors always say you must finish taking your yep. antibiotics. If they have drug-resistant TB, it could take a couple of years. So it's not easy, but it's easy in the sense of we have the drugs, we know how to cure it. I was just going to say that in animals, the treatment of TB has two issues. One, it's illegal, but that's basically because of the government strategy on eradicating it. Right. But also the actual problems of treating an animal for that length of time, both in terms of cost and practicality, get very difficult. And also you've got to isolate it fairly obviously from the other animals. Um, So that's where the problems start with that. But having said that, it then goes on to your thoughts on the ways that it might be tackled within animals and the way it might be spread. Now you mentioned that there were some thoughts within your circle of contacts that TB was being spread by illegal possibly movements of animals post yeah. foot and mouth. Well, um, um, this, this is something that uh, I must just this is not talking as uh, sort of on behalf of the charity because as I say we don't actually absolutely, deal with bovine yeah. TB. But I've been talking to a lot of people about bovine TB and I think it's fascinating that there is such different opinions about badgers. Some people I speak to think that if you could just get rid of all the badgers you'd get rid of all bovine TB. It's all there fault others think there's other ways to deal with it one person i spoke to said that although the badgers are being blamed for the increase because uh, bovine tb is on the increase at the moment and badgers are being blamed his theory was that movements of cattle since foot and mouth have been to blame and he feels i don't know how true this is that some of the movements aren't all legal I would suspect that he's not entirely wrong. Whether I think that they contribute much to TB is difficult to say. I mean, certainly the TB testing has been extremely rigorous and I can't actually see how you could get away with not having your stock tested. Then you get into the realms of are there animals being moved that have tested perhaps negative but have still got TB? And obviously to be infectious, the animal has got to be showing tangible symptoms yeah it's got to be coughing and and ill so that i suspect although it, it might be that I don't think that's the main reason from my point of view, but yeah. then again, I wouldn't, would I? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But, but uh, I was interested to hear about your thoughts on badgers, and I think a lot of people that I've spoken to are starting to think this way, although it isn't what Defra's saying. But if the badgers are healthy, then the cows are going to be healthy. If there is any passing between the two, then preventing badgers getting ill and infectious seems to be a good way to prevent your cows getting it. And, obviously, a way to avoid killing any badgers. (laughs) That's right. And also, I mean, if the badger population have got TB, the badger population are not going to be very well. And, therefore, that it's the benefit of them, as well as the cattle, to get rid of TB and badgers. I have been interested, and this was reiterated by talking to you, was that the idea that if your badgers are unstressed, and to some extent if your cattle are unstressed Mm -hmm. and healthy, they have a resistance to picking up infections like TB Absolutely. and I was actually talking to somebody yesterday and we were putting the idea around the table that if you inoculate animals or humans for that matter with for want of a better phrase beneficial bacteria mm-hmm. that these sort of probiotic treatments could help with TB in as much that they go that step further and promote 
bacteria which would then oust the TB, you know, the, the good bacteria would multiply at the expense of the TB. I wonder what your thoughts were on that sort of... Well, that's absolutely fascinating because completely coincidentally, yesterday I was looking up information about a gentleman that I'd come across who is developing exactly that and the idea, I was reading the transcript of something that he'd said which is basically, uh, they, were, they were calling it the dirt vaccine and, and basically they were saying that people nowadays in a sense are too clean children aren't eating enough dirt as it were and that's possibly the reason why we're not having the resistance to things like asthma possibly lung cancer possibly tb and they're looking at developing you know bacteria yeah it can actually prevent can give people a better level of immunity and possibly prevent things like asthma and possibly tb and it does sound very sensible i mean it's something that my mum's always said you know oh you've got to give children a bit of dirt to build up their immunity and one of the things that this guy said was that when they've done checks on children from exactly the same kind of social levels children who are brought up on farms are much less likely to get asthma and children who are brought up with lots of older brothers are also less likely to get asthma and they think that's because older boys are uh, are muckier and do you in in the context of human tb do you find that borne out by children and humans in less developed countries are subjected to much less sterile environments are you seeing that they have a resistance to tb which is not necessarily yeah, yeah, means that they don't catch TB at the same rate as you would have perhaps predicted them to. Well, that's difficult because overlaid on that is the extreme poverty in the countries where we work. Um, so if there were any of that phenomenon happening, it would be very difficult to see it because the problem with TB is that poverty causes all of the things that make you more likely to get TB. Mm. So you're living in poor conditions, you've got poor nutrition, you haven't got poor health care. And as you said, with, your, you know, with cows and with, with badgers, if a person is stressed, if their immune system is stressed, then they're much more likely to get TB. The other problem we've got in many developing countries, like in Africa, is HIV and again Mm. that's affecting the immune system so that may well be the case and you know that people have said that it's interesting that in some countries there seems to be different levels of certain mycobacteria environmental mycobacteria that are giving people some form of immunity but I think in many poor countries that's being overridden by poverty. Yeah the same bacteria group that we use to make our bakashi that you've probably heard us um, talking about. I have, I've just got myself a bakashi bin. Excellent, well in Japan and other countries that same bacteria group, the EM sort of mix then if you like are used as probiotics in animal feeds and so on and there is some evidence to well there's quite a lot of evidence to suggest that this is this is showing your dirt vaccine type phenomenon and it was really the discussion was well if that works in that way then the chances are that given that tb is a bacteria it could well help with that but i see of last week that defra's latest idea because they like modern things as you know um is that 
that they're going to try and test vaccinating the badgers with the BCG. Right. Because they can't vaccinate the cattle because that then renders the TB test useless. And it also has political implications with the import and export of cattle. So they've chosen the not terribly obvious route in my mind of trying to vaccinate badgers. So I I don't know whether you have any thoughts on the likely success of that or not. The BCG vaccination isn't 100% and that's another reason why in some countries they don't use it on humans or, or animals. And also for the the reason that, as you say, having the vaccine builds an immune reaction, which means that the skin test that you do to test for TB, which is testing for that immune reaction, is confused by the BCG. So in some countries they say, well, we'd rather know for sure whether somebody's been in contact with TB and then we can treat them for that, rather than masking it with this BCG, which seems to work anything from 20 to 80% Mm. effectiveness depending on where you are and possibly depending on the environmental mycobacteria that you've come into contact with Mm. as well because it may be also that they give you a skin test before you get the BCG and some people already have a level of immunity which may be from being in contact with TB and their body having sort of dealt with it or it may be from environmental mycobacteria as well so it's an interesting one um, and there's all sorts of issues about BCG in this country at the moment because the government has decided not to automatically vaccinate all children at at secondary school Mm. because they're saying well the, the pattern of TB in this country has changed and it's better to only vaccinate high-risk children and we'll vaccinate them at a very young age, sort of un- under one. Um, going back to the badgers, well, firstly, vaccinating the badgers isn't going to work 100%. I'd be interested to know how they're going to make sure they find all the badgers and... But, you know, well, vaccinate all the new badges. That I think the actual problems of vaccinating them in the first place is, is one problem, but actually then monitoring the success of the vaccine exactly. is going to get even harder. But I mean, it's, it's, it's a tough thing to monitor, and, and you, t- you speak to different doctors in this country, and as I say, nobody's really come up with a definitive answer as to how, how well BCG works on humans, and it's a lot easier to monitor then. So how are they going to monitor whether it works in, in badges is another it all sounds like work in progress. Well, it's absolutely fascinating talking to you, Melanie, and uh, we should keep in touch in terms of uh, if more, inf- you know, as more information becomes available. Um, either way, um, thanks, it would be for having me on. Well, it's it's great, and I've no doubt we'll speak to you again, and we'll perhaps have mastered technology a bit better then. <laughs> yes, I hope so. Thanks but a lot. I'll listen that's to great. The podcast. Thanks, thanks, Melanie. Bye for now. Thank you, Phil. See you all next week. And if you want to subscribe to the Wiggly podcast, go to www.wigglywigglers.co.uk forward slash podcasts and then subscribe via iTunes. And that way it automatically lands on your computer every single week. Bye. Bye.